I've had long embraces with people during the pandemic where you just need like a long, big squeeze. Their face is breathing over my shoulder and exactly. I'm breathing over their shoulder and we're outside. And I think that's just, it's so good and important. You're listening to episode four of The Nature of Nurture, a podcast for your mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carr, and these episodes are meant to be consumed in order. So if you stumbled into this episode by accident, it's my sincere hope that you'll back up and listen to the first three episodes first. But you are a sovereign being and I cannot control you. So you do you. Today's episode is called COVID, Your Government and You. It was a panel discussion that happened via Zoom for the Battery, and it's a conversation that I had with two fellow psychologists, Bart McGee and Louise Perez, as well as an epidemiologist and economist named Blythe Adamson. More about them in a moment. I put this event together because I had noticed some things living in San Francisco during different phases of COVID that have frankly disturbed me, and there's something that I should make clear at the very top of this episode. What we have collectively lived through this past year has been truly astounding. It's been life-altering on a lot of levels for pretty much everyone. And from that standpoint, there's a lot that could be said about it. Obviously, we touched on some of this in episode one, but we can look at COVID through many different angles. The lessons, the learning, the challenges, the growth. I'm sure that many people listening have lost loved ones to COVID and the grief of that alone It's all just a lot. So the devastation of this cannot and should not be minimized. That said, this episode is about anxiety more specifically. The anxiety that a lot of people have felt about the virus and the role that the government has played in that. It's about the polarization of our country's political response here in the United States and the impact that that has had on our communities and on us. I should also probably tell you that this is going to be the longest introductory segment of all of these episodes, of all of season one, because I have a lot to say. So pour yourself a cup of tea or a sturdy cocktail. I'm going to crack my knuckles. Let's do this. To rewind a beat, this discussion was recorded on August 27th, 2020. Fascinatingly, while I'm sure this will someday feel like quite the time capsule, As of today, which is April 18th, 2021, everything we discussed still feels relevant. I do, however, need to rewind us ever so slightly to the time of the Trump administration, so my apologies. After COVID hit and while Trump was still in office, much of the national focus about COVID was on how Trump himself was managing COVID, rather to say mismanaging it. And a lot of the national news, for good reason, was focused on his super spreader events and on the people who were throwing their sausages in Trader Joe's because they didn't want to put a mask on. In liberal enclaves like San Francisco, however, we were having a very different experience. On the one hand, there was wide-scale mask adoption the second we were told that was the protocol, which is fantastic. People here got with the program fast, and mask compliance has been strong. On the other hand, it has felt at times like the government mandates were overly stringent or even confusing, and the anxiety that many people here have felt about COVID has been palpable. 
For example, they eventually walked this back, but for a while last summer, the San Francisco government mandate was that we were supposed to wear masks if we were outside anywhere within 30 feet of another person, which struck me and a lot of other people as strange, just given how out of step with the actual science that was. Sadly, though, whether that was medically indicated or not, and it wasn't, it drastically heightened a lot of people's anxieties. So if people in the Bible Belt were refusing to wear a mask, in San Francisco, many people have been wearing masks while they hike alone in the woods and drive alone in their cars. Similarly, throughout COVID, I've heard stories about people who have been afraid to sleep with the windows open, people refusing to leave their homes. None of what I'm saying is meant with judgment, but with a lot of concern for the anxiety that a lot of people have been experiencing around this. And it begs the question, how much anxiety is the right amount of anxiety? You'll hear us get into this, but before I introduce the panelists, I want to make two things clear about why this all interests me so much. One, from a clinical perspective, in order to treat anxiety, you have to be able to realistically assess a threat. For example, the idea of a plane crash is really, really scary. So scary, in fact, that for some people, it hijacks the fear centers of their brain and renders them unable to get on an airplane, even to take a trip they might really, really want to take. When you're a mental health professional treating aerophobia, fear of flying, it's helpful to know certain things, like the fact that airplane crashes are newsworthy events, but that most airplanes take off and land without incident. In the United States alone, that's more than 45,000 flights per day, according to the FAA. Globally, in pre-COVID times, the number was over 175,000 flights per day. This is not to suggest that you can cure a phobia with a rational argument, you cannot. But it's important information to have. We need to know how a person's anxiety matches up against a threat, both as it's perceived and as it exists in reality. Unfortunately, in my book, a lot of the public health messaging has not been very mental health informed, and that has resulted in fears being raised as if fear itself is the thing that's going to keep people safe. And I think we need to investigate that. My job as a therapist, this is true of mental health professionals, is to encourage people to reflect, to think about how they feel and why they behave as they do. Being able to think about our anxiety and how much or whether it's warranted is vital to the work that I do. So knowing a little bit about how COVID is actually transmitted is indispensable. And so we come to the other reason why this interests me, and it's the role that the government has played here on both sides of the aisle. As you hear me say this, I want you to conjure some of the things we covered in my interview with Dr. Lalich in the last episode about how people get their ideas from the people they trust and from the people they perceive as authority figures in their lives. One of the things that's been fascinating to me about living through COVID is just the polarization of it. Very few of us have been getting our information directly from the experts. Instead, we've been getting our cues from our friends, neighbors, and from the government officials that we feel politically aligned with, which is to say the authority figures we trust. So on the right, and this was clearly true during the Trump administration, many people didn't even believe that the virus existed. On the left, we pride ourselves in being more science-based, but we also have received very simplistic public health messaging. 
Biden himself often parrots the phrase, wear a mask, but that message comes without further instruction and is totally devoid of nuance. There's no information about where or when. Just to get this out of the way, because it's extremely important, and you'll hear an epidemiologist address this herself shortly, all evidence points toward the idea that the virus known as COVID really thrives indoors. I'll add a few links to the show notes about this, but the greatest risk factor when it comes to contracting COVID is breathing indoor air if another person has been exhaling into that room who's been infected. Because COVID is aerosolized, it fills the interior of a space like cigarette smoke. We now know that up to 96% of COVID cases have been transmitted indoors. And frankly, not a lot is known about the 4% of cases that some believe were transmitted outdoors. According to a Washington Post link that I'll put in the show notes, these cases are not occurring because, say, someone passed another person on the street. It's more likely to be the case that there was some kind of sustained close contact in an outdoor setting of some kind. Because interestingly, you have to breathe quite a bit of COVID into your lungs in order to contract it. So is there a medical reason to wear a mask while you hike alone in the woods? No. On the contrary, your lungs might actually benefit from breathing some fresh air. Similarly, was there a medical reason to close down outdoor dining in California this past winter? Also no. But you've heard enough from me. Let me tell you a little bit about my panelists. Bart McGee is a colleague of mine who, in addition to working in private practice, is the principal founder and executive director of a training program here in San Francisco called Access Institute. The program is highly reputable and is able to provide low-fee therapy to people in the community because the therapists there are graduate-level trainees. I refer a lot of people to Access Institute when they're looking for a therapist and can't afford to spend a lot of money, and I'm a huge, huge fan of the program and the services it provides. A link to their site is in the show notes, of course. Bart and I really connected throughout the pandemic out of a shared sense of frustration and confusion about how the city was managing its COVID response, and he helped me to get in touch with the next guest I'll tell you about. Luis Perez. We cannot talk about COVID, in my opinion, without acknowledging the outsized impact that it has had on people who are not white. Going back to my airplane analogy about how plane crashes hijack the fear centers of our brains, the total number of COVID cases and COVID fatalities is so alarming that if you don't dig into the data, it's easy to be misled around who has been contracting COVID and how. COVID has had an outsized impact on black and brown communities because the people in those communities are more likely to work essential service jobs. Even more significantly, the people in those communities are more likely to live in close quarters with one another. So I'll let you hear about this directly from Luis himself, but he's a clinician who's in private practice, and he's also a supervising psychologist at Instituto Familiar de la Raza. Please excuse my very terrible Spanish. I speak no Spanish. (laughs) Instituto is a clinic in the Mission District in San Francisco that provides therapy and case management services to Latin American and indigenous people. Their community has been ravaged by COVID, so Luis's role in this discussion is just absolutely indispensable in my mind. Finally, we were joined by Dr. Blythe Adamson. Blythe is both an epidemiologist and an economist, and I personally think that hearing from her is like a breath of fresh air. So I'm incredibly grateful for her presence on this panel and her grounded, sound judgment. She's an affiliate professor at the University of Washington and a principal scientist at Flatiron Health. 
I found Blythe through a very dear old friend of mine, and she's both super smart and totally lovely. So let's drop you in on that conversation so that you can hear from her yourself, shall we? My first question goes to Bart, and off we go. In the lead up to this panel discussion, one of the things that you said to me was that you don't think the local government in San Francisco has done a particularly good job of crafting the messaging around this pandemic in a way that was either mental health informed or took human psychology into account. And I wonder if you can kick us off here by letting everyone know a little bit about what made you say that. Well, thanks, Leslie. Yeah, as you said, since the very beginning, I've been thinking about the mental health consequences of this pandemic. And I was really hoping that we could use it as an opportunity to effectively use psychology to combat the spread of the virus, and that we might use some of those lessons that we learned from the AIDS epidemic, not only to use psychology to, to combat the virus, but also to provide social support so the effects of the pandemic wouldn't be so great. And we might be get, able to talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, in terms of where I think we've gone off, I mean, let's just start with the fact that, you know, the virus spreads through human behavior and behavior is guided by psychology. So individual and social psychology. So it seems like a public health approach that's guided by psychology would not only be the most effective at stopping the, you know, the spread, but also would be, you know, able to help mitigate some of those negative impacts, which would be like a win-win. But much of the messaging, I feel like has really been focused mostly on anxiety. And, you know, that's where it hasn't really been, you know, terribly sophisticated. And, you know, of course, the media picks up on this, but most of the messaging has been about, you know, be afraid, be afraid of the infection, stay indoors, avoid all contact with strangers. It's like, and the whole paradigm of shut down and reopening kind of reinforces that. It's like the goal is to get to people to hide inside until it's safe to go outside. And, you know, of course, people need to be informed about risks, but it needs to be done in a way that provides support and a sense of self-efficacy. But I don't think that's really been happening. It's like people get are stuck in this kind of anxious, helpless state where your ability to think breaks down. And people aren't being given through those public health messages like reassurance, which includes solid information and helping find ways to stay safe. You know, it's like people need support for ego function. And without that, in this kind of state of elevated anxiety, you know, people do tend to look for something to rely on. I think that's kind of what's happened is that people look toward the rules. And again, I think a lot of the messaging is very rule-based. And so it often comes in the forms of rules, prohibition, and a kind of binary thinking, like right behavior, wrong behavior. So again, without that kind of support for people being able to, you know, have that kind of ego function, which is about, you know, being able to interpret the environment know what's going on around you, make sound judgments, evaluate risks. Really, it's that thinking function. They've reverted to this kind of rules. And then the rules are not really very helpful because a lot of them lack clear direction. They're sometimes arbitrary. They vary from county to county. And then also when rules aren't supported by facts and basic science, they, you know, they kind of, they sow confusion, Right. So then again, that just keeps the anxiety going. So what we really need are like the seer, you know, clear, simple guidelines that are backed by evidence and, you know, kind of support psychological safety. And that would then support healthy emotional functioning. 
So I just wanted to give you an example of this. And I, we talked about this before, but I think for everyone, it's, um, I would challenge you to go to the San Francisco Health Department website and read the guidelines that they've published on face coverings. They go on for more than 10 pages. And I really doubt you'll come out feeling reassured. It's completely Byzantine, riddled with conflicting rules and exceptions to rules. For example, on the one hand, you're required to wear a mask when you're on a busy sidewalk, except when you're seated on that same busy sidewalk at a table eating or drinking. And sometimes it seems like masks are required when you can't maintain six feet distance, but sometimes it seems like they're required all the times. So again, it's like really a lot of contradictions, which again, doesn't help people feel safe and secure. And also it spreads misinformation, I think, about the risks in the outdoor spaces. And I hope that uh, Dr. Adamson will speak about that a little bit later. And then finally, I think what we really need are these healthy social norms. And again, with all this chaos, we can't develop those norms. And that's where everybody implicitly agrees on what kinds of behaviors we have. And, and you know, people take their cues from social, their social environments. We've got this huge divergence of behaviors. It adds again, and, and social norms that go along with it, you get this divergence of you know, information. So for example, some people are behaving as if it's not really safe to leave the house. I know someone who won't go in a backyard because it's too dangerous. Uh, we also had a crisis at Access Institute this week and a patient who was suicidal and in risk of self-harm wouldn't go to the hospital because of fear of COVID. And then at the other extreme, you know, some people are, are, are going to house parties, right? They're behaving as if you can just go anywhere. So you've got this vast extreme and everything in the middle. And I would, I think everyone's experienced this, like trying to understand where your friends and colleagues lie on it so that you can know how to interact with them. It's, you, you got to do a lot of guessing. I guess I'll just leave it there. You know, that, that it's just, there just has been more chaos oftentimes generated by, by a lot of these rules. And it really just hasn't helped people feel like they can be effective in, in evaluating risk and staying. Thank you so much for that. You know, you've just said so many things that I, I want to kind of draw people's attention to, but I think just to get everybody in on this conversation, I'll, I'll kind of ping to you for a moment, Blythe. Obviously there's, there's a lot happening across the country kind of culturally in terms of different people in different municipalities, different states behaving differently and that kind of thing. But one of the things that you're saying, Bart, that it makes me think of is the notion of sort of how much is the right amount of fear or anxiety about this. And so it just makes me wonder, Blythe, because I know that you have done a lot of work with healthcare policy. And it do you have anything that you want to respond to Bart with in terms of how healthcare policy is generated? Or how do you make sense of this as an epidemiologist and an economist? Oh, you know, so much of that resonated because it's such a hard job to communicate effectively public health guidance because there's just so much, um, there are so many differences in education level. And the messaging has to be, you know, crystal clear and simple because there are many, you know, grown adults who really have the ability to understand maybe fifth grade, eighth grade reading level. And some of the, the nuances and complexities um, on one side for very educated people who can process and understand and use that nuanced data, you know, it's wonderful to have that. But a trade-off is 
what are you giving up in the, the populations that don't find that complexity as accessible? And so it, it is one of the hardest challenges. But, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, Bart, was, you know, how negative and how many rules there were to follow. I think that, you know, one of the things that we aren't doing enough is leading people to the things that are good to do and healthy to do in the pandemic. You know, I think of taking road trips or going hiking or eating out outdoors, you know, ha having picnics, all of these things that are so good for us and healthy ways to spend time with the people that we love. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, many of the rules that were given were based on uncertainty. When we don't know how this is spread yet, it might be aerosolized, it might be through touch. We had the Purell, you know, fiasco of February and March of 2020. And so sometimes the rules were based on the uncertainty. But as we gather more evidence and understand really how the transmission is happening, I think that there's a lot more that we can do to affirm to people what are good and healthy activities. Um, because the shaming doesn't work. You know, Bart, you mentioned things that we've learned from the HIV epidemic. And, you know, one of the things we learned is that publicly shaming people because of their behaviors and sexual activity is absolutely not the best way to promote healthy behaviors and help health in our population. You know, we guide people in giving them tools so that they can have sex safely and find pleasure and enjoy each other, you know, in a way that is safe. And when you shame, it just makes things go hidden, you know, underground in, in a way that's not good for any of us. And sometimes I think of masks in the same way, you know, we don't want to shame people for having a barbecue outdoors and taking a mask off to eat a hamburger. If it means that they're going to take that indoors and have a dinner party instead with their friends, you know, it would be better to tolerate and affirm the good practices that we're seeing instead of shaming people for rigid standards that might actually just lead them to do even riskier things not within public view. Precisely. Thank you so much for that, Blythe. And I want to ask you one follow-up question before we get Luis in on this. But since there is so much confusion around this right now, I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of how the science has evolved, our understanding has evolved. For people that are still, you know, wearing PPE to open their mail or washing their groceries, can you just give us a quick breakdown on risk transmission, dose and duration, like give people a little bit of a sense of where the risks really are and where they are not? Great question. So for a while, we had been hearing WHO being aerosolized deniers and all the scientists kind of building up the evidence to say, okay, we all agree that this is aerosolized now, right? We don't have as much evidence of there being that environmental surface transmission that we thought at the beginning that was leading to a lot of the Purell and the intense cleaning. I mean, cleaning is always good for hygiene. So I wouldn't say stop cleaning things, but at an individual person level, the risk of transmission from touching your groceries or mail, I think I've seen no cases ever from an exposure like that. The aerosolized transmission, 
really, if you kind of imagine someone who just during that really short window, a few days before they would show symptoms to a few days after they show symptoms, that high viral load spike time is when the, even if they don't show any symptoms at all, just their breath is full of the virus kind of in a gaseous form. And so you can imagine that being in a small, tiny conference room with one other person, even when you have a mask on, is the longer that you're there together, the more the, it, the potency gets concentrated inside that small room. And so that's why, you know, I feel so much better instead of spending time with someone in a small room, like going for a walk together is a very pandemic friendly activity. Being outside with a, you know, a breeze blowing, because then you can imagine if you just like sprayed a puff of cologne indoors in a small room versus outside, it kind of just dilutes into that larger space around you. Yes, brilliant analogy. Thank you so much. So I want to shift gears ever so slightly. We're going to kind of come full circle here because life, I just can't get over how lucky we are to have an epidemiologist and an economist in one person. It's, it's wonderful. But so Luis, just to, to get you in on this conversation, even though COVID theoretically does not discriminate, it's affecting people of color disproportionately in the United States. And just to give everybody some numbers for this conversation, uh, in California, Latinos make up 39% of the population, but 57% of coronavirus cases. cases. And in San Francisco specifically, uh, these numbers are fresh off the presses from sf.gov as of today. If we pick a, a random so-called kind of white neighborhood in San Francisco, pick a random one, let's say Pacific Heights, full disclosure, happens to be the neighborhood I live in, there have been a total of 126 diagnosed cases of COVID since this whole um, problem started. And in the mission where you work, where the population is double, uh, the total number of diagnosed cases is 1,224. So again, 126 diagnosed cases in Pacific Heights and 1,224 in the mission. Can you just tell us a little bit about what life has been like for you over the course of the past couple of months with the community that you serve? Sure, sure, sure. So, so you know, I also resonate with everything that um, all of you have uh, been saying, right? So, and I, and I think that if I can think about a world, I would say amplify that. And that's how life has felt, you know, like working at Instituto and trying to help people. During this time, I think that one of the things that, you know, we are a community a behavioral health organization, you know, that, that provides mental health therapy and as well as case management, you know, linkage, uh, you know, education and outreach programs. We have a lot of different programs. We have a, an outpatient clinic. We have an HIV mental health clinic. We have an early intervention uh, program, you know, where uh, mental health consultants go to school, you know, to work with children and families. So we have indigenous wellness uh, program as well. Um, and, you know, what we have noticed is that what we have struggled with is that, you know, we have been... In fact, just helping these families, you know, get through, you know, these these really difficult times. You know, one of the things that when I say amplify is that, you know, the language value, right? You know, like how 
that information that Vlad is talking about, you know, that has to be simple, straightforward, you know, gets so much more complicated when the information is not available in Spanish, right? You know, a typical population, uh, Spanish population in San Francisco is people, you know, with grade levels, education levels from one to three. Uh, you know, most people that come from rural areas, you know, from Mexico and, and South America and Central, Central America and, and the Mayan population that lives here in San Francisco, you know, also, you know, probably uh, between one and three, but the majority of people have no schooling and they also speak Mayan. They don't speak English and Spanish. So for that sector of the population, you know, that is mostly concentrated, not in the mission, but in the tenderloin in San Francisco, you know, we see a lot of other, you know, difficult things happening with them. So, you know, at Instituto, we have been actually spending time, not too much doing therapy with clients, uh, you know, to address the anxiety, but to help people, you know, like uh, basically deal with all these other psychosocial stressors that they're dealing with. Lack of food, lack of jobs, being unable to stay home or do a barbecue, you know, with friends and family because, you know, they have to, you know, the, the, the Latino population and the Mayan population, you know, especially the men, they are the ones that are working on the kitchens at the restaurants, you know, they are the labor, uh, the labor day workers, you know, like trying to get job outside. Meanwhile, the moms are staying home, you know, with the children. Um, trying to figure out, you know, how to engage them in schooling. So, you know, there is a lot of other dynamic, you know, happening in there. You know, a lot of people have lost jobs, but, you know, a lot of people have actually had to keep their jobs. You know, what has happened with our, with our families is that, so imagine a, a flat in the mission uh, with five rooms and uh, five families live in that flat. You know, in each room you have three or five families, and I'm sorry, three or five people, you know, members of the family. Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen is that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, people will just like go outside, you know, to, to play soccer or just to walk around the streets because they actually felt safer without knowing anything that, you know, it was safer to be outside. And then they, they got a lot of the shame, right? The city and county of San Francisco also, you know, deploy, you know, uh, people from a workers and institute to actually go with litter bags, Purell, and some sandwiches and some masks, you know, like a, a bunch of indigenous women, you know, from the indigenous program like that together and made these beautiful masks. And we actually went around the mission, you know, distributing these masks and just talking to people, you know, why are you outside? Because that's what we knew. You're like, you cannot be outside. And then, you know, we already knew why they were outside, right? Because, because that's the place where they hang out every day. And that's the place where they have to go to get jobs and, and because they have to obtain the food outside. So we learn other things, you know, we learned that some of those people, for example, that they labor, the men, they share shifts, you know, like one walks out at night uh, while the other sleep in a bed and, and the other person just work, work during the day while the other person shared the same bed during the day. We also learned that a lot of people, you know, are allowed to live in these small rooms, you know, in different houses in the mission, but they're not allowed to use the kitchen. So they're used to obtain, you know, all, all the uh, food outside, you know. So, so, and then we were having that, you know, from, from then, you know, we, we understood, you know, we kind of like move people around. We understood that people could be outside, that it was actually there for them to be outside. And then we started just like, you know, making little bags of rice and beans, right? Because then, then people struggle, you know, started struggling with food. We had got some funding, you know, I think we had like a hundred thousand dollars and we were able to 
I give people one hundred families a thousand dollars, you know, for them to pay for rent. You know, like the the things that were happening in San Francisco, you know, keep happening. You know, for the for the Latino community, you know. Uh, so you can imagine also uh, immigrants, you know, undocumented people, you know, really uh, being taken advantage, you know, by landlords. Some people, you know, actually taking them out of their houses, you know, not respecting the laws in the city. So, so there is a lot of happening that people are struggling with. And, you know, we're just trying to help them uh, with as many things as we can. You know, like we have been seeing people in person at Instituto, you know, providing a space, you know, where we can actually keep social distance because a lot of the people, you know, that have to apply for, for housing, like uh, food vouchers and things like that, cannot actually, you know, use a computer. They can barely use a phone, you know. So, 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 you know, the the resources are very, very scarce. You know, the same thing has been happening with the children, right? Like the the moms that that were staying home, you know, and trying to to keep the children at school couldn't do it because they couldn't help them with their assignments. They don't know English, and some of them don't even know Spanish. So, you know, there is a lot of these like psychosocial stresses, as I said, that have been amplified, you know, and we as a group, you know, have, have been really, and I think that's true for mental health, right? So we think about the Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs, you know, we cannot really grow anywhere to be productive or, or, or to self-realization if we don't have the base needs met and that's what we have been doing you know with a lot of these families hence i think the high number uh, of cases in in latino families because you know when when one person get infected the whole household get you know gets infected and they cannot go anywhere they have to stay with each other thank you so much for that louise i want to ping back to you for a moment blythe and just say There's so much in what Luis just said in terms of the economic factors and the inequities and kind of how that factors into the policies. And I'm just, I'm just wondering if you want to share any responses you have to what you just heard. Absolutely. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of opening versus closing public schools, because I think that while on one side, we want to weigh the health of children who we haven't really seen have bad outcomes from the virus and teachers who are more susceptible to bad outcomes. But really, when schools are closed, it's exactly like you were saying, Lisa, the the psychosocial health disparities then become exaggerated for lower income families, for single parents. And from an economic perspective, it's not great for unemployment to have so many people who need to be looking for work right at the time where now they have to have their children at home with them Mm -hmm. instead of a safe place to go. And so I think you're right that it's just compounds um, the anxiety and pressures that often come along with poverty as now more school and other services are they're less accessible to people because of the pandemic. It just feels like such a tight squeeze. Seriously, and it's so interesting. I have a feeling, Bart, you might want to comment on this, but I just think that one of the things that's so interesting is this issue of, for the people that Luis is describing, the fact that they don't have computers, you know, to your point, life, there's this issue of getting kids back to school. One of the things that it makes me think of is how, the healthcare policy was written with a certain amount of privilege in mind, because going back to your idea of these, you know, these Byzantine rules that we were given, 
If you look at the local San Francisco guidelines, and I'm making a lot of this specific to San Francisco, mostly just because this is where most of us are, even though we are doing this on Zoom, most of this audience is local to San Mm -hmm. Francisco. If you look at the rules, they are so oriented towards stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home, don't leave the house, Mm -hmm. don't go outside, be afraid, be very afraid, and let us repeat again, go home. And I just think one of the things that I hear you saying, Louise, that is so complicated is that it's not safer for everybody at home. Some people, it is quite literally, the home is actually the least safe place that they can be. And in fact, in some instances, it's actually not even possible for people to be home because if your version Mm -hmm. of home is effectively renting a bed where you don't have the right to be in the home for the rest of the day, you know, it just really highlights this need to find a way to get kids back to school because the whole communities can't function. Yeah, and maybe I could jump here with in here with my little bit about the what happened during the AIDS years that I think mm. we didn't learn from because I think what you're all talking about is that that these messages and the interventions have to be culturally appropriate. Like, you know, you can't do a one size fits all message and help communities that have different needs uh, and different experiences. So one of the things that I thought was powerful, I mean, I lived through those years in the 80s and there was a project here it was actually done by UCSF and community groups. It was called the Empowerment Project. And so it's like what Blythe was saying about how, you know, they knew that gay men were not going to stop having sex. So they would, you couldn't just say, don't have sex, which is kind of what we're trying to say here, right? Just go inside, right? No, so they, they actually went in and they trained peer, like they trained peer volunteers to go into bars and go into the communities and help people learn how to be safe in whatever kinds of sexual activity they're having. So again, you you have to tailor it to the community. And the other thing that they did, and that's why it was called empowerment, it was also about empowering people. Like everything Luis was saying, it's about helping people, like showing up with real, what they really need. And again, tailored to each community, giving them the support they need And then you give the message and then you help empower them to figure out how to be safe in whatever environment. How do you figure out how to be safe when you've got a household where you can't use the kitchen and, you know, several people are in each room and different people are working in different frontline jobs? We need to figure out how to help people there. And it's really funny because it actually reminds me of a conversation that you and I had, Blythe. You brought my attention to a New York Times article about how to safely hug during the pandemic. And I think that one of the things that people really underestimate is the, the human need for physical contact. You know, when we have welcome contact with another person in the form of a hug or something like that, it releases oxytocin. It's really healthy for the brain. And it kind of reminds me of some of the messaging that you're talking about with the AIDS epidemic and the notion of, you know, you just can't tell people to not have sex. I think one of the problems with the public health messaging is that it doesn't take into account the fact that humans need humans. I actually, I just, I just want to say something about that, you know, in also how important it is for Latino, you know, the displays of affection, right? You know, how we greet each other, you know, how we kiss each other when we see each other, you know, like it has been, I can say traumatic, you know, for us to actually arrive to work and have to go like this, you know, because what we do is when we get to work, you know, we kiss each other on the cheek, 
You know, we always say, you know, why people don't don't touch each other? Why people don't show up? You know, but what it is is that, you know, we do a lot of that. You know, that is so important for, for us. So, so, so imagine also the, the being deprived or something that is just also such as, you know, cultural value as well, no? I want Blythe to tell us how to safely hug. <laughs> Can you tell us, please? You've read the article more recently than I have. Yeah, I'll, I'll share what I recall. So, you know, it talked about things like the difference between outdoors and indoors, you know, that especially that if it's, you know, among people who are sort of not in a high risk group, that particularly if you either, you know, if you put a mask on, you can hug face to face outdoors, you just want to kind of get your head around the other person's head so that you're not breathing into the person's head. Yeah, um, I think that's exactly right. If you, I've had long embraces with people during the pandemic where you just need like a long, big squeeze. Their face is breathing over my shoulder and exactly. I'm breathing over their shoulder and we're outside. And I think that's just, it's so good and important. Exactly. You had a few more things. Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of, of other ones. They were talking about how, you know, grandparents can hug their grandchildren, especially when their grandchildren are small, because they're kind of waist height, you know, they had all these little drawings and diagrams. So they were showing, you know, a kind of a, a like a grandparent and a grandchild where the grandchild is kind of at um, uh, sort of stomach height. They were also talking about hugs from behind, you know, that you could come up behind someone and as long as you turned your head and didn't kind of breathe into their airspace, you could hug them from behind. It was really cute. It had pictorials. But it's very similar, I think, to what you're describing around HIV and AIDS and, and how people came up with guidelines that were human-centric. I want to give everybody, just each of the three of you, a chance to say, like, what of every, from a mental health perspective of all of the things that we're talking about right now, kind of what is most important to you or what you would want people to take away from this conversation the most? And I'd like to start with you, Luis, of all of the things that we're talking about, what do you want people to take away from this conversation the most? Yes, the thing for me is that, you know, culture is so important, right? You know, having a cultural perspective, you know, what is happening. And if you can help anybody or you can give an advice or you can be with somebody that is from a different different cultures just ask them what they need you know they they may not need a hug they may not need a kiss you know but they may need some food or they may need something different right or permission you know to to do something that they feel that they can do because they are not from the main uh, culture and you know they're gonna experience a shame know that different cultures need different things you know in moments like this and you know one size don't fit all mm. i guess it's mm -hmm. not about mental health right I think that it is. I would argue that it is in yeah, yeah. a very inclusive approach to mental health, I think. Uh -huh. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, um, and what, what about you, Blythe? What is, what is the thing that you would want people to take away from this conversation most? Well, there are some things that we've started doing in the pandemic that I hope that we will keep doing after the pandemic is over. And one of them is telemedicine you know, we've stopped receiving care for a lot of the other health conditions that we have in the way that we've been trying to shelter in place. But many of the neglected diseases that people are living with or remaining undiagnosed, that comes at a cost. And so I think that my encouragement to people would just be to seek help that you need and that telemedicine is a, a wonderful opportunity for people to access something if if they don't think that it warrants the risk of 
walking into a hospital or, you know, a doctor's office. So I hope that, I hope that telemedicine stays. Love it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. I think I'll just sort of do a little shameless plug and say, particularly with mental health care, because I think one of the things that has been really incredible actually about this time is that there is, there's this spotlight put on mental health in a way that I've never quite seen before, just more openness around it. A lot of people are reaching out for services in ways that they never have before. And so I just want to highlight that for mental health particularly, but what about you, Bart? What would you want people to take away from this? I think I would want people to really recognize just how toxic anxiety can be Mm -hmm. and how important human connection is in helping cure or helping, you know, people recover from anxious and traumatic states, you know, so the anxiety plus the isolation has been really, really bad. And I like what Blythe has been saying about it's safer outside. So I really would hope people would really consider that it's actually safe to be outside. And that's the place you can connect with people. And that is going to really help improve our mental health as a community. If we can, as we're saying, like think creatively about how to, to move outside and how to do things like school or connecting with friends or even hugging. I like the hugging part. People need hugs when they're feeling stressed and anxious. So, you know, that's what I would hope we would learn and go forward with. Thank you for that. And I will say one last thing just to kind of tie it all together. I think something that I would really want for people to take away from this conversation is that in terms of what Luis is sharing about what his work has been like in the mission and in terms of what I was sharing in terms of the rates and the data, it's really important to highlight that what is driving those numbers up is indoor activity. It's, it's, It's people not being able to get away from one another because they live, like you said, five families in a five room house or something. You know, it's, and so just to really highlight that in terms of this idea that, you know, it's sort of like COVID doesn't discriminate. And yet, you know, here we are economically speaking, sort of seeing the way these inequities show up. To me, it drives home something really urgent, which is how much healthier it is to be outdoors. And just what a challenging position we're in as a society, whenever somebody is in a position where they can't do that. (laughs) So I just, it feels really important to, um, to really highlight that. You've been listening to episode four of The Nature of Nurture, and I want to thank you for joining me. My colleague Luis is not on social media, but you can find him via his website, which is drluisperez.com. Bart is on Twitter and Instagram. He's at Bart McGee in both places. And Blythe is on Twitter and Instagram as at Dr. Blythe Adamson. I, as always, can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Leslie Carr. And all website URLs today are in the show notes because there's kind of a lot of them. If you found this conversation valuable, please let me know by leaving a review or rating. It helps immensely to get the word out about the podcast and into the ears of those who may need it most. It will also help me to understand what you're getting out of our conversations. You can also subscribe, if you haven't already, wherever podcasts are sold. Next up is episode five, where I talk about empathy and race in America with Corey Ponder. Racism affects all of us, 
And I think that it's more acutely obvious when we talk about race as a function of you are oppressing this group of people. Many, many thanks to my producer and sound editor, Amanda Roscoe Mayo. I truly could not do this without you. And to Bart, Blythe, and Luis for having this conversation with me. Thank you as well to Colleen Curlin and everyone at The Battery for hosting us, and to Donio Odulio for the artwork. My final thanks go to Steve Van Dyke, Lee and Tyler Sargent, and Joe Potts for the permission to use their music. The band was called Clown Down. Clown Down.